Good evening. It's good to see all of you here today. I think our numbers are going up on Sunday night, too. This is a really wonderful thing, and the singing was excellent, so thank you very much for, for that. Welcome to Cornerstone Bible Church, those of you who are in the room, and uh, for those of you who are joining us on the live stream, thank you very much for being here. That's an encouragement to me. And uh, we're going to be back in Ecclesiastes tonight, so if you would, turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we're going to pick up where we left off last time I preached, so that is uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18 tonight. Let's go ahead and read that, and then we will uh, we'll pray. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I realized this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom, there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you now. We come to your throne room. You, the king of all things, the sovereign creator of all things, who are due all things. And we thank you, Lord, for being the giver of truth and knowledge and wisdom. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless us as we examine these verses tonight and that they would indeed, as Bruce said, transform us. To transform us, Lord, by changing us more into your likeness. To inform us so that we know your righteousness better. And so that also we see how we are being sanctified, set apart from this world and the lies which it tells. We ask, Lord, that you would indeed guide us, guide your people here and wherever they are found worldwide in the way of truth. And as more and more lies rise up against us, we ask that your truth would shine brighter still and that you would be glorified. And we ask that tonight as we study these verses by your Spirit and through your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18 is what we're going to look at tonight. But I kind of want to hit the ground running, so I want to give a little bit of a a review of what we talked about a couple of months ago when I last uh, uh, preached. And we kind of went through an introduction of Ecclesiastes. And I want to hit a few of those high points of the introduction and then also talk a little bit about what we, we said about chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. We talked briefly, you'll remember, about the word koaleth, which is uh, translated in our New American Standard or English Standard as preacher. You'll also see it in some of the other uh, versions as teacher. It kind of comes from the, uh, 
from a root word meaning assembler, which is actually how uh, Solomon is talked about in 1 Kings 8 when he assembles all of Israel in order to dedicate the temple. And it's one of Solomon's favorite um, terms for himself. It is the favorite here in Ecclesiastes, where he uses it seven different times. But the use of the word here at the beginning of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and then also in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 12, has kind of led a lot of scholars to actually wonder and question the, author- the authorship of, of this book, whether it was truly Solomon or somebody else. Despite what centuries of tradition and the internal testimony of the book actually say, ultimately the reason of this, the, that the scholars have for this, um, that they seem to pose the question, seems to be that they want a later date of writing. In fact, some of them as late as uh, the third century BC. But uh, we kind of made the decision last time that we're going to stick with the traditional view of this. We're going to stick with the internal testimony, and we're going to say that this is Solomon. I truly do believe that. And along with that comes a better understanding then of what he is trying to say and of some of the angst that actually comes along with this whole thing. Because as you saw in our our, uh, passage tonight, it's a rather pessimistic book, isn't it? Lots of vanities, (laughs) lots of striving after wind. Yeah, it doesn't uh, necessarily fill us with a whole bunch of joy. We also talked about how this book defies any logical analysis, as one commentator put it. But that this does not, this, this fact does not give us license to um, allow for any philosophical skepticism about it. You know, we're not supposed to just uh, take it as, okay, this is one guy's thoughts and, and let's and throw it out for that. And, and I think there are two reasons for this um, defiant the way that it defies all logical analysis. First of all, I think because our Western mind doesn't really uh, fall in perfectly with the way that Ecclesiastes is set up. Our Western minds tend to go more chronologically and progressively. We, we think of things, okay, if we start at the starting point and see where, follow all of the steps to where it ends up, then we kind of understand it a little bit better. However, the Eastern mind was often more topical and so you can see here that Solomon, as he's utilizing his Eastern mind, he's, he's going from topic to topic, and he's trying to make points at different, at different uh, sections of the book. And in so doing, he loses us in the West, <laughs> but he makes his point, and that's the key. And so what's incumbent upon us is that when we come to the text, we actually look at it as um, as closely as possible to the way that he intended it. The second reason why I don't think we can take any philosophical skepticism about it is uh, because Solomon seems to be struggling with expressing his regret, as if he is ashamed of the years which he has wasted and is almost falling all over his own words in pleading with his son, to whom this seems to be addressed, and to us as readers in, by extension, He's pleading to live life with eternity in mind. Have you ever had that happen? Maybe when you were confessing something that you weren't proud of, that you were ashamed of, and it it just tumbles out of your mouth. It doesn't actually make any sense because it can't follow any progression, and and our our minds are just kind of uh, falling, well, our tongues are falling all over us as we try to express what we're saying, what we want to say. That seems to be what Solomon is doing here as we go through Ecclesiastes. 
is there are times when it, it seems a little bit of a jumbled mess, and yet we can glean so much truth from it. One of the key reasons for the study of Ecclesiastes is the fact that it has a very all-encompassing nature. It gets right down to the ultimate questions of life, and part of that is because Solomon is trying to express this angst. He asks questions like, why am I here and living? What is the meaning of this life that I have? How can I know that something is true? You might remember the quote I gave last time from the atheist writer Kurt Vonnegut Jr., who said, quote, Plato said that the unexamined life is not worth living, but what if the examined life turns out to be a clunker as well, unquote. And we talked about how that was a great summary for the book. <laughs> a lot of people go through life and they never examine anything. But what if we do examine it and we find out that it's just a bunch of vanity, a striving after wind? Well, if you're an atheist and a humanist, and a materialist, yeah, it's probably going to be a clunker. But as we see in this passage and throughout Ecclesiastes, the overarching theme is that, yes, all of this is vanity unless, unless you apply God to it, unless you understand that it is God who is the governor of it all. And so we also talked then about how at the end of the book, we get this wonderful theme passage, chapter 12, verse 13, in which, um, in which Solomon says, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. Therefore, when everything the human can conceive of has been tried in order to find meaning and joy, things like wisdom or pleasure or wealth or work or power, he gets to all of those things. When everything has been tried and found to be nothing more than a striving after the wind, the only real answer to the ultimate questions of life is to fear God and to keep his commandments. And so we're getting down to the ultimate things. Therefore, the hopelessness of this book, which I'm sure you felt as we read those verses from chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, the hopelessness in this book, as shown in the repetition of the horrible declaration that this too was vanity, it serves to underscore the thesis that we actually see when Augustine actually gives his confessions. If you've ever read that, at the very beginning, he starts with this prayer and he says, Quote, you are great, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. You arouse us so that it delights us to praise you. For you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Unquote. In other words, what we find in Ecclesiastes is the principle that if God is not everything to you, not just some percentage, but everything, then he is nothing. Everything for life, everything for breath, everything for joy and goodness and love and peace and strength and meaning. If he's not everything, then he ends up being nothing. And guess what? You don't get anything else either. Jesus said, as we're very clear, or we know really well, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. And that puts into perspective... We're putting first his kingdom and his righteousness, him, he, he alone. 
However, amidst all of the questions, which Ecclesiastes poses, one ultimate question which plagues the modern mind, this is one that you see so much in our society, one of them which modern man tends to think is so brilliant and imperative is never actually asked in this book. And that's, is there a God? And you're going to see this in a moment as we get into our passage. But instead, Solomon merely assumes that he exists. And that's very key. Because to assume an answer exists, excuse me, uh, from the acknowledgement of, of God's creation of the natural cycles, which we saw in our uh, last time I preached in, in uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, the natural cycles of the world, like the sunrise and the sunset and the, the um, swirling of the winds and the water cycle and birth and do- death, all the way, that's in chapter 1, all the way to chapter 12 where he talks about the inevitability of death. God's existence is never questioned throughout the book. And I think that the reason this is the case is that to pose a question of meaning in life or in death or in joy or in pain is to naturally assume that meaning as a concept exists. In other words, nothing can have meaning unless meaning means something. And nothing can be vanity unless vanity has meaning against ultimate meaning. Therefore, to pose a question is to admit that God exists. And Solomon would have known that. To pose a question is to assume an answer exists. To assume an answer exists is to assume that truth exists. To assume that truth exists is to assume that a standard of truth exists. And to assume a standard of truth is to assume that God exists. And so we merely get a different way of arriving at the ontological argument for the existence of God, which is why Solomon never asks the question of God's existence. He knows to ask the question is to answer it. And yet today, what do we see? We see a whole bunch of people who are asking the question, and then when the answer comes, even just by asking the question, they don't like it, and they argue it. In fact, over the past few weeks, I've been studying and writing about the conflict between the postmodern, or excuse me, the modernists and the postmodernists. Out of the back, of the back end of the Enlightenment came the modernists, and uh, they ended up having, benefiting from a lot of the things that the Enlightenment left behind, including the fact that uh, a standard of truth actually did exist. Now, sure, they shunted God off to the side. But because of that, they actually were able to make some inroads. They were able to be productive with it by differentiating and exploring the natural world. But by shunting God off to the side... What they did was they gave birth to the postmodern movement, which rose up out of it and basically ate its host. (laughs) And the postmodern mind, with all of its nihilism, it's basically just a philosophy. It's like a little child that can do nothing more than exclaim, Nuh-uh, to everything you say. Nuh-uh, that's not true. That's all it is. It never builds anything. All it does is it deconstructs, it destroys, it breaks down. And the only thing that it does kind of build is when it packs together its sandcastle that it puts right there where the tide will destroy it. Because ultimately, the next postmodernist comes to destroy whatever was put up before by every postmodernist before him. 
Do you see how hopeless that is? How nihilistic it is? And this then brings us to our passage for tonight in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, because Solomon talks here about where all human wisdom leads, and he does so as one who has seen it all. After all, in his time, he was in with the in crowd. He was one of them for a while. He won all of the Nobel Prizes of his day. He was the one that all the publishers fought over to get his next book published. He was the speaker which everyone wanted as keynote. And so we get this wonderful summary that we get in our passage today. Let's read it one more time. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after wind, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain." It probably struck you at least the second time how pessimistic this is, right? And as I prepared for tackling this portion of Scripture, I couldn't help but notice how much it does seem jumbled, how much he does seem to be repeating himself over and over again. And I, it kind of got me to the point where I did not know exactly how to structure this, but I finally came to it. There is a bit of a starting point from which he descends to a wonderful proverb in the middle of our passage, and then from which he ascends again, and each each uh, statement tends to mirror one another. And so what I want to do is I want to look at it in that way. I want to talk about, first of all, the introduction to this passage, basically the task that Solomon gives to himself, and then I want to talk about the grief of this passage, the analysis of this passage, the vanity of this passage, and finally the proverb. So first, let's talk about the introduction, the task that he gives to himself. Verse 12, I, the preacher, Koaleth, had been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. So once again, just like in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, we see Solomon describe himself in two ways, Koaleth and king. And there's something significant about this dual title, I think. King brings to mind authority and power, and it also kind of brings to our mind, too, the unlimited resources he had at his his disposal in order to do what he was going to do, this task that he was going to give himself. Meanwhile, Koaleth, remember, preacher, teacher, assembler, it brings with it um, this wonderful idea of 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 knowledge, of wisdom, of actually um, understanding something and being able to express it. And so taken together, these two titles indicate that he speaks as one with experience and authority. And that's key for this section, and not only just this section, but also through the entire meaty part of the book. You know, we talked about how, too, last time, how this book almost is set up with 
two voices. There's a voice on the, at the beginning in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and at the end in chapter 12, verses 8 through 12. And then in between, which is what we're getting to now, is a second voice seemingly. Perhaps, a, um, perhaps this is the older Solomon that he's, and he's giving this, and somebody tacked on the, the, the ends, or vice versa. But there seems to be that second voice. And in this, therefore, we get this wonderful introduction. An introduction into what he will be doing. A summary up front of how wisdom is futile and pleasure is futile. That's what we would get to next time in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Pleasure being futile. And what we also get, because he describes himself as Koaleth and king, this king teacher... We almost get like this random guy giving advice, or that's how it would seem. And we've seen that trope, you know, in television shows and movies and all that sort of thing, where you end up with uh, some random old guy who interrupts the fun that the young guys are having, and, and he wants to give advice, advice that was never really asked for. And it always seems out of step with the lifestyle that the young people are, who, who the story's actually about, are actually living and it never occurs to our culture, certainly not the characters in whatever television show or movie, that this random old guy might actually have something useful to say. But Solomon's not some random old guy. Instead, by showing that he is a king teacher, he's also showing, hey, I actually have something to say. He's, he's not random at all. He's got something useful, and he's got something very ultimate to, to teach. This old guy, king teacher, then lays out a task for himself. He says, and I set my mind, this is verse 13, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. So in other words, as he's introducing this, and we kind of see this, this language about how he had set his mind to seek out and explore wisdom, we see it repeated in here, but... In this verse, in verse 13, it's almost as if the Solomon that is telling the story, that is expressing what he has done in his life, the Solomon which is expressing regret, is taking himself back in his own mind to a time when there was a younger Solomon, when maybe he had first taken the throne, when he had first taken on the wisdom or realized that he had the wisdom, and when he also realized that he didn't have anything else to do and might have been bored, ah, I'll give myself a task. I'm going to seek out everything. And then when we see him talk about it again in verse 14 and verse 16 and 17, it's him saying, yes, I did see it all. I completed the task that I gave to myself. And so he truly sees that everything he sees everything. He experiences everything. And that's when we get to the grief. We saw the introduction. We saw the task that he gave to himself in the introduction. Now we see the grief. End of verse 13 says, It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. And then skipping down to verse 18, Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. When we read straight through the passage, 
It might be easy to miss the link between these two verses. In fact, reading the end of verse 13 might make us ask the question, what is a grievous task? But we get the answer to that question in verse 18. Much wisdom and increasing knowledge brings much grief and increasing pain. So instead we ask the question, instead of asking the question, what is a grievous task? We ask the question, why does increased wisdom and knowledge result in increased grief and pain? And that's actually the better question. That's the question that not only our passage here examines, but the entirety of the book of Ecclesiastes. Why would the, the, the searching for wisdom and knowledge actually bring about grief and increasing pain? Well, I'm going to keep you waiting for that answer because we're going to move on for a minute. We'll leave it hanging for just a moment, and we'll get to it um, a little bit later. And so we go from the introduction, this task that he gives himself, to the grief being expressed. And now we get to the analysis of what he sees. Verse 14, the beginning of verse 14, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold... Then he says in verse 16, I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 17, And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. In these verses, we see this analysis of the task which Solomon had given himself in verse 13. He had seen it all. All the works which have been done under the sun. In fact, he really emphasizes that word all, doesn't he? He says it four times in our passage, three times just in this section that I just read, the analysis section. He expresses that because I think he means that he saw it all. He truly saw it all. Also, remember that the under the sun phrase that's here is one that's also often repeated in Ecclesiastes, and it is meant to emphasize everything, the entirety, the completeness. But beyond having seen everything, this Solomon, this Koaleth, this preacher, this teacher, this explorer, actually explores it all. And we get to into the, the nitty-gritty of it as we continue through the book, and as we unpack what he actually did he didn't just see it all he didn't just hear it all he didn't just read it all he explored it all he he felt it all he did it all why well because he had given him a task to do to know wisdom and knowledge versus madness and folly as he said in verse 18 and it's at this point that i have to take a little bit of a detour because I think it's important for us to unpack the words wisdom and knowledge since we're going to become very acquainted with them in Ecclesiastes. And if you look them up in the Hebrew dictionaries, you're going to end up finding basically the same uh, or a jumble of words that all kind of seem to mean the same thing. The Hebrew deat, which is translated as knowledge, means ability, discernment, understanding. And then the word hakma, which is wisdom in Hebrew, shrewdness experience and technical skill and it seems jumbled there because to me i would go well the discernment seems like more of a wisdom thing and the technical ability seems more like a knowledge thing why does it get all jumbled like that but when we see how it's used in the scriptures 
And when we check the theological word books or something like that and see how they are used and, and the entirety of what they actually say, we get a little bit better of a view of it. Because knowledge simply means the familiarity with the subject, personal experience and observation. It means you, you read the textbook. That's what it means. Whereas wisdom is the sense of prudence and discernment and examination of things. It's more application. In other words, a line is drawn between them at the point of deeper familiarity and application. Knowledge informs. Wisdom guides. Knowledge sees or hears. Wisdom actually understands. Knowledge can be parroted. It can be repeated. But wisdom must have an internalization and a transformation actually take place. So, in fact, go ahead and turn over to uh, Proverbs chapter 1. We'll go to a very well-known passage here. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. So when we read in Proverbs 1, chapter 7, something like, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We get a fuller understanding of what is meant here. Note that the word knowledge actually has a governor within this, uh, this, this sentence. Um, something that actually holds it back, restrains it. it is, and that's the word beginning. Knowledge has a... Uh, um, it's governed by the word beginning. As in the fear of the Lord is the first and controlling principle that we have. If we actually um, are to understand anything, if we're to gain any knowledge, what do we need first? We need the fear of the Lord, and then that actually sets us off on the beginning of knowledge. But here's the thing. It being the first and controlling principle does not mean that it's a stage which we leave behind. That should be clear, I think, to those of us who have been regenerated by the Spirit because we know we don't leave behind the fear of the Lord. We don't mature past that. No, instead what it is is it's a a platform from which to gain all knowledge. And then you'll notice that it is the fear of the Lord which actually does it, that actually brings about that knowledge. And the fear of the Lord is a worshiping submission to the God of the covenant. We fear him, and that being the platform from which we work leads to the beginning of knowledge and then every subsequent bit of knowledge. But what it also does, and this is the most wonderful thing, and this is, granted, it's, it's turning on its head, the second part of the verse, but what it also does is when we stay rooted in that fear and knowledge of God, that first and guiding principle or controlling principle, is we end up then not despising wisdom and instruction. And God also, implicitly in the verse, brings it about. Because the fear of the, uh, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and therefore it brings about the wisdom and instruction. I think that's key for what we, we see here in uh, Ecclesiastes, and it's key for just our our. Christian principles. For instance, I mean, the same thing is kind of talked about by Paul when he, he talks in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, uh, the love of Christ controls us. Okay, so once again, we get kind of that word control. Uh, a first controlling principle 
there for evangelism is the love of Christ. So just as, a, as an aside and as a way for us to kind of understand this, knowledge begins when we acknowledge God. Knowledge begins when we fear him. And guess what? What it does is it brings about a lack of, of despising <laughs> wisdom and instruction. So instead, we embrace it. We embrace that wisdom and, and instruction. So going back to our text, Ecclesiastes 1, back to verse 16, we see him say, I said to myself, behold, I have magnified and increased in wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Once again, beyond having seen everything, Solomon has explored it all in order to know the difference between wisdom and knowledge on one side of the equation and madness and folly on the other side. That despising of wisdom and instruction, right? It is important to note that these two sides are opposites. If wisdom and knowledge go hand in hand, at least when paired with the fear of the Lord, then madness and folly go together on the other side. And they're opposites of knowledge and wisdom, which helps us to see that there is, by necessity, a split in which all of the world's people fall into one camp or the other. That of knowledge and wisdom, or that of madness and folly. That of usefulness and growth, or that of uselessness and stagnation. That of righteousness, justice, and purity, as Solomon put it in Proverbs 1, or that of scoffing, simple-mindedness, and ill-discipline, as Solomon put it later in, chapter, in Proverbs 1. In fact, we're told the same thing, that this division actually occurs. We're told the same thing by the writer of Hebrews. In, uh, in fact, turn over there real quick. This is also a well-known passage, but I do want to uh, highlight something here. Hebrews chapter 4. We're just going to read 12 and 13, very well known. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And so we see that the words of God... The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And what does it do? It divides asunder, as the KJV puts it. It divides asunder. It cuts in twain, as the DG, DV puts it in Douglas Virgin. It cuts in twain. It cuts so that everything is laid bare. That's how he says it in Hebrews 4.13. It cuts so that it's all laid bare before the eyes of God. And when it cuts... And this is key. This is the main reason I bring up this passage. When it cuts, it doesn't divide with like odd shreds of material falling off into a third thing. No, it cuts perfectly. It cuts and it leaves two divisions. Because that's how the word, like the word of God, this wonderful Bible that we have, that's how the word, the wisdom and knowledge of God works. It divides perfectly. And so when we go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 17, we see that Solomon is searching for what is good and right and decent in order to know what isn't. And that's when we see his so oft-repeated declaration, all is vanity. Because in this perfect division, he realizes that when God isn't applied, 
it's all vanity. And that's the next section. So we've got the task that he has given himself. We have the grief that he has seen in it. We have the analysis. And now we have the vanity of it all. The end of verse 14. All is vanity and striving after wind. The end of verse 17. I realized that this also is striving after wind. Having given himself a task to do, having felt the grief of the task and found the analysis to be too much to bear, he now declares it all vanity and a striving after wind. You'll maybe remember the question I asked last time, can you catch the wind? Are you able to hold it in your hand? Can you tell where and when it will blow? The other day I was sitting in my office and I had the window up because it was a beautiful day. Completely still outside, but nice cool air coming in. Just wonderful. And it was that way for hours. And so as I was working, papers started to kind of pile up on the desk. Pencils were there, scattered around. Because I'm messy when I work. And all of a sudden, without any warning, the leaves on the trees started clapping and singing. And all of a sudden, a huge gust of wind came right through my window and upended everything. And then it went away. And it was gone. And it went back to being still for hours on end afterward. That's that weird Ohio weather, I guess, Bill was alluding to earlier, right? And I couldn't help, as I was picking up the papers and the pencils, I couldn't help but laugh about it. Laugh at the absurdity of it. It was so sudden and so unexpected and so unpredictable and so uncontrollable that I had to laugh at it. I can't even strive with the wind much less after it. I don't know where, where it will blow next. I can't, uh, I can't grab up a, a gun or a crossbow and go hunting for the wind so that I can maybe shoot it, capture it, taxidermy it, stick it up on the wall. I can't do that. It can't be done. And that's the idea which Solomon actually gives us here. He's trying to drive the point home. That in in attempting to parse the things of life into good and bad and wisdom and folly, itself is something vain if it's divorced from God. How can something so comprehensive be applied? Trying to find the comprehensive in the peculiarities of life is that very grievous task that he was talking about. And so we get to the proverb. We've gone from the task to the grief, to the analysis, to the vanity, and now to the proverb, which kind of encapsulates the whole thing and encapsulates the whole book. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now it's true that some of the translations, um, you know, the ESV, the Christian Standard, NIV. They also have uh, verse 18 written in proverbial form too. And it certainly sounds proverbial, you know, the, for in, such, in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. However, that proverb in verse 18 is a repetition of the statement that we see in 13b, which is not in proverbial form and does not lie at the heart of our passage. It basically just provides context for it. Instead, kind of following this structure of descent and ascent, 
I think there at the middle of the passage is this verse, this wonderful proverb. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. As man seeks knowledge and wisdom, he uncovers grief and increasing pain and finds that everything is vanity, a striving after the wind, because what is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And we might actually argue with that. We may go, well, I've, I've got this uh, fence post in the backyard. It was metal, and it kind of got bent. And I was able to bend it back into a straight line and, and utilize it again, you know. Oh, yeah, you know what? I, I, can, lack, I can find out what's uh, lacking. I can count it. I figured out how to do subtraction. I can do an equation. I can figure that out. But that's not what he's talking about here. And it does have a spiritual connection, but there's also something physical here too, which is, I think, more in line with what he's saying, because what is crooked cannot be straightened and what is lacking cannot be counted. Okay, think for a moment about this. Um, I keep getting emails about uh, new pictures from the Webb telescope. I don't know if you guys get those. But think of the Webb telescope. It's been blasted into space. It's sitting out there in orbit around the Earth, and it's looking out, trying to see the farthest visible reaches of space. Why? Because it's looking for information and phenomena for man to study. We do the same thing here on Earth. We take a submersible. We strengthen it so that it can take the deepest um, the, the, ver- the pressures of the deepest parts of the sea, we throw it in the ocean, we guide it down into the deepest trench, and we look around why for mysteries to solve. Think about a biologist who's digging deeper into genetic codes or a mathematician who's exploring fractals. Everywhere we look, no matter how deeply we look, we see new questions to explore. And as a matter of fact, Sure, sometimes we find answers to the questions that we pose, but what does that actually do? It leads us to a hundred new questions to ask. We never get to the end by digging like that. And I think that's the point that Solomon's making. What is bent, what is crooked, cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Because every single time we find a way to straighten it just a little bit, ah, guess what? There's something else that's wrong. Every time we try to find a way to count what is lacking, we end up realizing that there's more lacking there that we don't even understand. We take this, this proverb in verse 15 lies at the heart of our passage because I think it's the only way for Solomon to express the limitations of knowledge which are divorced from the fear of God, from the fear of the Lord, as we saw in Proverbs 1, verse 7. We'll take another detour for a second. One thing which we did not dwell on in our look back at uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, but which I briefly mentioned um, in our introduction, is basically this, this postmodern nihilism, okay? And I want to I want to take a moment to talk about that. Nihilism, it comes from the Latin word meaning uh, nihil, which means nothing. And basically it is a belief in nothing. That nothing can be known, that nothing can be moral, that nothing can have value, that nothing can give meaning to life. And it's easy to see how this actually pervades our culture and actually guides most people. 
People have chaotic lives because in their rejection of God, they have attempted to find pleasure in whatever pursuits they feel like, right? And then that chaos brings them into a feeling of frustration. But instead of repentance, they double down on the sin that they actually committed that brought them to that frustration and chaos. Or they find some other sin (laughs) to try. They double down on it, looking for meaning, or maybe we could say while trying to escape the vanity of their life, they merely find more emptiness. And so what does it lead them to? It leads them to nothing. Nothing. And that's what Solomon is saying here. Vanity. This too is vanity, a striving after wind. It's nothing. Unless, because we want to keep on going back to chapter 12, verse 13, unless we apply the point that Solomon has to make, which is fear God and keep his commandments. For this applies to every person. So throughout this passage of ours is found this nihilistic hopelessness if it is divorced from the context of God. And we have here in our very passage, though, something even more than just Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, you know, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. We have Solomon, amongst all of his angst and belly aching about everything being useless, he never allows a form of atheistic, humanistic, materialistic nihilism to actually take over or to unseat God. You may have missed it, But there in verse 13, he actually just assumes that God exists. You see that in verse 13, it is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. And sure, he leaves the grief at God's doorstep. But you notice he's not questioning the existence of God, is he? God is there, whether we acknowledge him or not. And once again, I think it's Solomon's wisdom that actually acknowledges that. There are many crooked things which need to be straightened. We see that. Everywhere we look, we see that. There are many things which are lacking and impossible to count. But God is there, right? God is there. Or more appropriately, God is. (laughs) God is. And the fear of him is the beginning of knowledge. And to despise his wisdom and instruction, as it was written from before the beginning of the world and delivered to us by the Holy Scriptures and Christ himself, to deny that is to be a fool, as I said before. Because fools despise wisdom and instruction. And to even ask the question of whether God exists is to admit that he does. To fear the Lord and to keep his commandments, however, is to know knowledge and wisdom from madness and folly, which is what Solomon found out, right? He learned knowledge and wisdom, and by it he saw that everything was um, madness and folly apart from God. Fear God and keep his commandments. And so to find in him a solution for straightening that which has been made crooked by our sin... And to find what is lacking from our lives. That's the key. That's the key. And it's actually, 
if we give ourselves a task, just like Solomon did, that's our task, is to understand how he can straighten what we have made crooked by our sin and how he can fill up what is lacking in our lives. Our job is to fear him and to keep his commandments. And guess what he'll do, according to Proverbs 1, verse 7? He'll bring about wisdom and instruction from that. Fear God and keep his commandments. And we see this especially in the New Testament, how the filling up of what is lacking comes. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, For in Christ... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Fullness. But he goes on. Because in him, you have been made complete. Once again, we've made things crooked by our sin. And we can't straighten them. We've emptied our lives of all the meaning that we have emptied of our lives of so many things that we don't even have the, the uh, knowledge or imagination to understand. And yet he makes us complete. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. That's completeness. Complete. That which is lacking and cannot be counted is filled up in Christ. And we are made complete. Praise God.